Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBenfi podcast. Today, we're talking about some new research for SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 genomics. Things are changing very quickly, so we should mention that it's the 12th of March, 2021, and some of what we mentioned might change by the time you hear this. Today, we're going through a new method for identifying variants of con- Today, we're going through a new method of identifying variants of concern using Sanger sequencing, and we're joined by two of the authors of this method, Kai Blin and Tui Jorgensen. Tui is working as a postdoctoral researcher in microbial genomics at the Technical University of Denmark, uh, DTU, with a background in plasmid biology and metagenomics. He is now working on genome sequencing and comparison of antibiotic-producing bacteria. Since January 2021, he has been developing a COVID variant detection system. Kai Blin is working as a researcher with a focus on microbial genome mining at the Technical University of Denmark. He has a background in computational biology and software engineering. Most of his time is spent on maintaining and extending the anti-SMASH secondary metabolite genome mining tool in the surrounding database ecosystem. Since mid-January, he is building the COVID variant detection software of TUI's COVID variant detection system. So welcome both. Hello, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. For sure. So let's get started. What do you both normally do? I can go first. So normally uh, I am working on genome sequencing of a large collection of actinobacteria um, with the purpose of finding new antibiotics. So we do comparison of these genomes. We select clusters, biosynthetic gene clusters found with Kai software, and we express them and try to find new compounds. Yeah. And Kai, what about you? So I'm working as a research software engineer most of my time, where I'm in charge of running and extending the anti-smash pipeline, which is a tool that finds uh, interesting biosynthetic gene clusters in microbial genomes. So, I mean, the purpose of this is trying to find and identify clusters that might be involved in the production of new antibiotics or other interesting uh, secondary metabolites. And uh, there's a bunch of databases that we also need uh, that sort of go around this, um, like the MIBIC database of uh, known and described uh, secondary metabolite gene clusters. And there's the anti-smash database that is basically anti-smash results on publicly available microbial genomes and, and so on and so on. And so the goal of this is then to support both sort of our group's work on trying to find new antibiotics, but also everybody else's. And uh, I mean, anti-smash is running around 100,000 or more jobs uh, on the public website a year. All right. And that's a, that's a big jump then to go into SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern and looking at it with Sanger sequencing. How did you two get roped into this? In the beginning of the pandemic, I volunteered at the COVID testing unit. So that was basically my entry. So I was um, in the normal qPCR pipeline, working shifts, getting the system up and running. So from that, I knew all the people in the testing system. And Kai and I were discussing 
how to test variants around the around New Year's when variants started to be of concern started to appear. So after some discussions and also talking to other people in the field how they were doing it, we decided that we could do it simpler than that and faster than that, and then we just basically started. So how long has it been in production for now? That's the beauty of it. So we started. Um, it took less than a week for developing both the software and just like starting to use the primers. And then since the middle of January, we've run on 100% of the positive samples from the testing unit at DTU. And how many samples is that now? So it's a lot less now because there was a big, uh, there was a lot more. So in the beginning, it was around 200 samples a day. And now it's less than 100 samples a day. And are those coming from staff and students or from the local hospitals? So this the samples come not from staff and students. It come from local hospitals in the Copenhagen area. And then I think some more samples, but like we don't do any of the sampling. We get the samples and then we, we extract the RNA and run the qPCR. And then we use the same RNA to, to do the Sanger sequencing. So you do diagnostics and sequencing at the same time? One after the other, because yeah, one after the other, because there's only in Denmark, we sequence so many samples. There's only like 0.3% of samples are positive right now, something like that. So like doing Sanger sequencing on all, on all would not be a good idea. It's possible, yeah. but it's not a good idea. And so then how do you link in with MADS genome sequencing effort? Basically, the sequencing effort MADS is doing is fantastic. And he's doing whole genome sequencing on the nanopore system. However, it takes uh, some more days for them to get their results than it does for us. So what happens is that as this, as soon as we have positive samples in the qPCR pipeline, we set them up for, for Sanger sequencing and then we once we've sta- we've started that process, we sent the samples to mass for whole genome sequencing. How do you link in with um, your local public health teams when you find some variants of concern? Do you report it immediately to people who take action, or, or what happens there? Yeah, so it's actually a dual thing. So we get samples mainly from hospitals. So we do, we report uh, the the variants directly to the hospitals. But at the same time, we also directed. Uh, the same information to the Danish authorities who, who do the contact tracing. We get the hospital information on their patient samples and the, also the they, they test a lot of their employees, of course. But at, like simultaneously, we give the information to the contact tracing units. So the information uh-huh. is really made available to everybody immediately. Have you had any surprising results pop out like P1 or anything like that? Yes. Last Monday, we got our P1, which was the first one in Denmark. So we were immediately alerted because it was like very, very clear signal that it was a P1. Of course, we can't tell from our pipeline that it is P1, but we can say that it has all the hallmark mutations of P1 and that it has none of the mutations that you would expect of any of the other variants. So what we did was that we alerted authorities immediately by telephone and by Slack and by any channel we can, and they got the person isolated. And then we could fast track that sample in the whole genome sequencing pipeline. And two days later, we, we had confirmation that it was in fact a P1 that we had found. That's brilliant because uh, in that case, you know, it's such an important variant and you've caught it so quick, uh, you know, days before genome sequencing. I presume then there is follow-up surge testing or, or kind of ring testing around that person. Yes. So, I mean, that's outside of what we know about. And like, so um, our setup actually has zero uh, personal information. So like we never see any information that can be linked to anybody. We only see barcodes at DTU. So we send the information and then it's the hospitals and the like the CDC equivalent who's doing the actual contact tracing. So we, we don't know who the person is. 
but but we made sure that the right people got the information immediately when it was found. That's fantastic. So, it shows so, I'm really working very well. Yes. What's the time frame in this case, like from getting the sample in your hands to knowing it's a P1, how long would that have taken? Like, so from the sample was taken, I don't know. But from it was sent for sequencing, it took about, I think about, about 24 hours from we sent it for sequencing. So that okay. is like, we have relatively good statistics. So the fast, but the statistics we have is mainly from swap to result. I don't know about this sample, uh, but so the fastest ones we do is about 30 hours, which is really, really fast. And then the average is around 50 hours, 50 to 60 hours from swap to variant call. But that is also, I think, relatively fast compared to like, so that includes first running a qPCR and then taking the sample out, running the RT-PCR, sending it for Sanka sequencing and doing the analysis until it's answered out, like until we tell the, the hospital what time it is. So that's like the start and the stop of that. So that's, yeah, 50 to 60 hours. That could be shortened if we would be doing the Sanger sequencing sort of more locally. Part of the, the nice thing about the method really is that there's commercial hearings that basically just do the Sanger sequencing in a highly optimized version, which sort of keeps the prices low. I mean, it's also what, in my opinion, makes the whole thing accessible to pretty much everybody who can like set up the qPCR testing. So like in, in our case, I mean, it's, it's a question of, is it fast enough? And the... The answer for that is for what we need it for, it is. The protocol itself takes a roughly around six hours, right? Yeah, I mean, less than that. It's just setting up a single. So that's also like we, we really aimed for having simplicity and ease as the main things. So there's no purification of the product. The only thing is to set up an RT-PCR and then taking some of that product and sending that. So like there's no purifying there. So can you take a step back and maybe explain the protocol? Yes, maybe I should do that first. <laughs> yeah. So basically samples that are found to be positive in the qPCR testing, they are picked into new 96 well plates and then a reverse transcriptase PCR is set up with that and a single set of primers from the Arctic protocol. After that RT-PCR is run, we take 1.5 microliters of the product and mix with the forward primer and sent that for sequencing at a commercial provider. I should maybe say that the enzyme mix we're using is actually the same enzyme mix that we're using for the qPCR. And that we chose not because it's good, but because it's accessible. Like if you can do a qPCR, then you can also do an RT-PCR with the same master mix. So we run 10,000 reactions per day of this. So doing an extra 200 is, a, like, is at no cost, and we can just go into the freezer and pick out as much as we need. So we don't need a separate system for this setup that we do for the qPCR. Once we've sent the samples for sequencing, we get the results back the following morning. And then we do analysis on Kai software, which takes a few seconds per, like depending on the system, but it, it, it can run on any laptop and it takes like less than a second per sample if it's a normal setup. So can I ask, how did you choose which region of the genome you're targeting? Well, so we set this up in the start of January. So the only real variant that we knew about back then was the was the, the B117, which was first found in, in Britain, in Kent, I believe. Basically, we just found, we found an area with a lot of mutations in that area. And then we were also talking to both Mass Albertson and, uh, and the Danish CDC and heard about their plans to do variant testing. And we, we kind of agreed that this would be a good region to place well, not place the primers in, but to pick the existing primers from the Arctic protocol and use those. So then I just tried it. Uh, I was given access to some samples and ordered the primers, got them the next day and tested it. And it worked beautifully. I sent that for sequencing and that came back perfect. And then we set up 
two days later, we started production. So that's 1,000 bases within the spike protein, is it? Yes, it's 1,001 bases. So it's uh, two different primer sets where we're using the forward primer from one primer set and the reverse primer from another primer set from the Arctic protocol. You mentioned Danish CDC, you mean SSI? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how internationally uh, recognizable that is, but yes. And I well, believe they don't actually have a name in English. Yeah. My uh, is at CDC came from SSI. We knew a lot about it. Peter Gunner Smith. A long time ago, probably before your time, but, but, <laughs> um, but um, in Denmark, there are two completely parallel tracks. There's the track which tests the population, and then there's the track uh, which tests the hospitals. And we are in the hospital system. So we basically, we give our data to SSI, but we don't actually interact with them too much. So you do all the hard work and then they take all the credit. I think they uh, have been okay in giving us the credit also. Like, so for example, when we found the Brazilian variant, uh, the Minister of Health in Denmark uh, tweeted about it and, and mentioned us in his tweet, which uh, like my, my boss was very happy about and I was also very happy about. That's awesome. So what about your protocol? Um, can you modify it if, say, one of the primers stops working or if a different region becomes uh, interesting? How quick could you turn that around? I mean, basically, it's just ordering a different set of primers and seeing that they work. So we actually are already testing a couple of different sets of primers, uh, except uh, on top of the, the Arctic ones that we are using now. So it's it's very, very fast to change if there's another variant that has another area of interest. In terms of the sequencing data you get, do you just get one single Sanger read or do you get multiple reads or what? Again, for the we chose for the ease of the complete process, we chose to get exactly one read per sequence. So that means that the quality is maybe less good than if we sequence, for example, from both ends. But it means that the sample flow is incredibly simple because you get like you send a sample with one barcode, you get it back and match it to the sample barcode that you have, and then you have your result. I mean, we get worried when you do sequencing and you get less than like a thousand X coverage, you know, across the genome. And we like with Lumen, we would never call less than 10. But actually, if one read works, well, then great. So, I mean, the, the beauty with the Sanger sequencing is that, like, if you get decent quality Sanger data, then, like, the quality is really good. So you can do a lot of variant calling on on that. I mean, compared to some, some of the sort of more modern versions where you really want more reads to cover the same area. I think it's also a factor that uh, that the samples that, like, this method is not necessarily thought to be the end product. Like, in our setup, all positives are whole genome sequenced afterwards. If every sample was not whole genome sequenced, I think our screening would still be what a good qualification for which samples should be whole genome sequenced. And have so you tried to build um, phylogenetic trees or anything like that with your, your data? No, no, we have not. We've only looked at the known mutations, especially because we're not actually interested in finding the exact phylogeny of it. We just need to in the fastest and easiest way possible, find the variants and then tell the people to be extra isolated, I guess. And then we sent the samples for whole genome sequencing and they will do the epidemiological genetics part of it. I mean, for example, if you had two P1s pop up suddenly, would you be? Would you maybe look at the reads and see, are they identical or are they slightly different? Just in case there is mutations in the thousand base region. So, I mean, this could be done, but I think there are so few mutations that it doesn't necessarily make so much sense, especially when we're doing as much whole genome sequencing. Like the value of us doing that rather than Mass Albertson finding it a week or two later. I, I, I mean, we know that we know that it's a P1. Like we know that it has the characteristic mutations of P1. And then the, the other part of it, I don't think is as important to get as fast. And there's new variants coming out, it seems, every day now at this point. 
So how are you going to keep up with this for your publication? So, I mean, at some point, we just have to stop taking in new things for the publication. But for the pipeline, I think you are, you are like, we're both following it as closely as we can and updating as soon as there's a new mutation, we add that call uh, to the pipeline. How do you decide which mutations are interesting? Yeah, so that's a great question. We've obviously initially focused on, on just uh, like the most important ones, right? So, I mean, E4 at 4K and 501Y, right? So, I mean, like that's the the major ones. And like the idea again is that sort of the pipeline is thought to be a tool to help the health authorities with the contact tracing. And sort of a, a discussion that we had a while ago was, I mean, basically if we find one of these or two of the, uh, or both mutations, right? We basically want to be able to tell the health authorities that like here, you need to put a lot of work in the contact tracing because that's sort of, high importance and then which strain it is exactly is sort of more of a secondary interest from our perspective and again as Tua said right because every positive sample is going to get sequenced this info will come a couple of days later so it's really to to close the gap between sort of like the initial we have a positive sample and we can kick off like the high intensity contact tracing that you might want to use if you have like especially like the eek mutation right the other one is at this point in in, in denmark is pretty moot because I think we're at like over 80% of, of the positive samples are B117. So like that one's done. I mean, we still want to go and, and be able to have a fast turnaround time to say, hey, go ahead and, and do like more resources at contract tracing for these ones. And then, yeah, I mean, again, like phylogeny is going to come later. So also to answer your question more directly than uh, Emma Hot Hotcrofts uh, covariance.org is the main resource that we go to these variants and the mutations in them. Uh, on top of that, like when we see something interesting or hear something interesting, then we include the, a mutation call for those positions. For example, we had a meeting with some, some people working in Africa last week, and they were very concerned about a variant called a 23.1 in the pangolin system. So then we looked at this this particular strain and found that it actually does have mutations in our amplicon and then added them. But I mean, one of the things that we also decided pretty early on is that we're not actually trying to call the variants, right? We're basically just calling the mutations. And then sort of the, the output of the pipeline is a table with all of the mutations. I mean, recently, just to be sure, because after we found the P1, uh, people were a bit skeptical. And so we basically added sort of quality values there based on the read quality uh, in that particular positions. And um, that's what we report back. Because I mean, we, we came to a point when, I mean, there's a bunch of variants now that are sort of separate variants that have the same telltale mutations in our sequencing window. So, and it was clear that it was going to be really hard to, to tell these apart. I mean, also because sort of initially I, I was trying to build these sort of in a bit of a resilient way that if one of the calls didn't work out, I can still call the mutation. And like in our window, there's not a much, uh, like a whole lot of different uh, difference between like B351 and P1. And so if we, if we said, hey, um, we allow for like a mutation to be missing or like an extra mutation to be present just because of sequence quality issues, then suddenly it's getting really, really hard. I mean, this was, it, it was like pretty clear pretty soon that this wasn't going to be scalable. So we basically pulled back and sort of what, what the hospital system that we started developing this initially for, they needed for their internal setup was just a list of all of the mutations that they were interested in, in the sequencing window. And that's what we could provide very easily. And that's super scalable for future things because basically adding like a new position that we check for a mutation and then adding like another um, column to the table is 
yeah, five minutes worth of effort. And then I spend another like 10 minutes on like deploying a new release and that's it. So I guess you're moving towards then constellations of mutations that people keep talking about rather than focusing on the Pango lineages, which uh, is actually a much better way to do it as you describe, you know, because what you're interested in is the, the eek mutation and not that it just happens to be independently arising on, you know, five different B117s. Again, I mean, like we, we couldn't, like from the data that we're looking at, we couldn't even tell for some of these, right? So, I mean, there's the, there's a bunch of new variants of uh, interest or, or variants of concern popping up in, in the US. And basically like from the spike window that we sequence, they all look the same, right? I mean, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't really tell the difference. But on the other hand, right, we like all of them have an eek mutation. And basically like from our perspective, like, we don't have a lot of eek mutations in Denmark at the moment. We want to keep it that way. So like every time we find that, we just know, okay, like high gear contact tracing for these ones. Obviously it's it's interesting for a longer term view and also for policy planning to, to know like which kind of mutation was that. But again, that's what uh, general sort of COVID genomics that was going to happen on the sample anyway is going to fill in a couple of days later. Okay, so the so actually I, I looked at the the covariance.org a couple of days ago, and we can actually separate except for four variants which are not particularly interesting. We can separate all of the interesting variants she has listed, including the one found in New York recently and the one found in California recently. Like we can't separate these. Like so, we can't separate the vast majority of interesting strains, and then not just not calling them strains. We're calling them mutations. But I mean, that's also provided that all of the positions mapped fine and the read quality is high enough, right? Because I mean, that's an issue we do run into occasionally. The read quality around um, like E. Canelli is usually fine. Um, if it's stuff that's sort of way to the end of the sequence or way to the beginning of the sequence, as usual with, with Sanger, right? Uh, quality is a bit tricky there occasionally. I wouldn't feel confident in really sort of trying to do like proper strain calling uh, based on the data that we, we see in the pipeline. Um, I've tried and it, it, it wasn't pretty, so we decided, okay, let's let's not do it. So maybe moving on to your software. Um, I mean, Sanger sequencing is very accessible around the world. There is machines everywhere. That it's been around for decades, so it should be reasonably easy for people to use. But your software is actually really in interesting as well because you can install it very easily. Like it seems to be in Conda. You've got Singularity up there or Docker. So fair play to you for... for wrapping that up really nicely. You even have tests, like that. that's the sign of very high quality uh, software engineering. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's one of my pet peeves in, in sort of my, my whole career that a lot of bioinformatics software that I have to deal with is of surprise level of quality where you sort of never know what you're going to get. Like if you start using it, right? Something that I've learned from sort of a experience. I mean, like we've been doing anti-smash for over a decade now. And one of the things that of course happened was that we built like the initial version on like a super short timeline um, because sort of the PhD supervisor and the PhD supervisor of Marnix, Medema, who, who sort of was the other PhD student behind this initially, they decided we should like do a joint piece of software that we can publish together. And sort of we finally got started when it was, uh, I don't know, one and a half months until the um, NAR web server uh, proposal deadline. So we basically had like, yeah, 40, 50 days to build it. Uh, from two existing pipelines that we had to smooch together. And that was all sort of a couple of long days and short nights. And sort of we got something that worked sort of, but I mean, not very robustly. And 
I mean, immediately afterwards, it was clear, okay, so we need to like engineer this more properly. And I had the luxury of sort of learning a bit about sort of decent software engineering as an undergrad with sort of all of the extracurricular stuff I was doing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a member of the Samba team, sort of doing software, proper software development there. And so I'm, I'm always trying to get that into my software development projects. And it, it saved a lot of projects over the years uh, to have proper tests. So people can't see this, but uh, you're actually wearing a Google Summer of Code t-shirt. Yeah. Well, that's the Mentor Summit one. So it's uh, that's from when I when I sort of shifted sides. I, I got started in open source software development with the first Summer of Code back in 2005, when it was, I know, 400 students out of like 9,000 people who applied. I mean, now the numbers on, on sort of both accepted students and people applying is, of course, much higher. So I mean, I have to say as a mentor, the quality of applications has gone up way much. I mean, like I probably wouldn't have accepted my own application from back in 2005 now if, if it was on my desk. But I guess that's pr pretty true everywhere. In 2005, uh -huh. nobody knew what they were doing. So it's, it's fine. So I, no, I was looking for your code. And uh, so you the steps you take are you start off with a bow tie to alignment. Is that it? So we actually start with uh, Tracy uh, to um, do the base calling on the, on the AB1 files directly. Yeah. Uh, because again, um, that allows us to keep in control of pretty much, I mean, like the, the Sanger sequencing will in any case give you like the AB1 files. So that's something everybody's going to have. And then sort of we, we take it from there, we use Tracy for the base calling because that was like the most straightforward base caller to set up for, for the Sanger data. And then, yeah, um, we, we map uh, to the reference genome using Bowtie and then just some tools our way out of the whole thing by getting pileups for the individual mutations and, uh, then sort of go and take the SAM tools outputs and, and sort of do the post-processing in Python. So do you use uh, mpileup for actually calling it or do you translate it into anything else like VCF no. tools? No, no, we basically just use mpileup. It's not the most efficient approach, right? Because we, we basically do one mpileup call per uh, mut mutation that we're interested in. But I mean, it's, it's very convenient because it's super simple to test. If anything falls over, it's it's pretty straightforward to go and sort of check manually what's going on. Sorry, just to clarify, uh, you do samples and pile up just on the three nucleotides yeah. for each mutation you're looking for. Yeah. That's really cool. And so we basically like at the moment, I, I lost track, but I think we're at like 12 positions we, we look at for, for mutations or so. A little more. And so, yeah, something like that. I mean, I, I have to go and look at the code to check. Um, but um, so basically we run like 12 of these pileups per sample. Again, it's not like the most efficient way of doing things, but as Tua said, like the whole pipeline takes, um, I think like 10 seconds on my machine to run through a 96 well-played of, of uh, sequence data. So, I mean, it's it's fast enough. It's a bit slower if you if you run it on, on Windows machines because that like you pay a price for forking there that's higher than on, on Unix machines. So it takes like 10 seconds when you run it on a Windows machine in Docker or something like that. But I mean, it's still compared to everything else. I mean, uh, you have a fast turnaround time and uh, it's fast enough. And and that's sort of always like the balance you have to strike with a project like that, right? So, I mean, if, if you've looked at the code, you will have seen that the tests, they really take care mostly of, of parsing the mpileup results and sort of turning it into the data structures that so we need internally, right? Because that's the part where things go funky occasionally, right? I mean, like that's where we had most of the um, sort of the pipeline is written a bit defensively, so if stuff doesn't look like the way it expects, it just crashes because I always feel that that's a better way to to see that there's something that's not supposed like the way it's supposed to be. So we had a lot of crashes in there when like the pileup results had 
some funky things like, I know, if you have a mutation uh, or like a deletion upstream or downstream, then the pileup string will show that. And I didn't realize that in, at first because I didn't read the man page properly. And then sort of adding all of these edge cases to the parser was was a bit difficult uh, to, to get right. And then sort of like, that's the ideal place to test, right? And if I, if I ever need to go and rewrite that, I can do that or like change things in there. I can do that with ease now. Because as long as my tests still work, I'm pretty confident that it, I didn't break anything else. And I mean, that's that's what you want to have tests for, right? I mean, like the test coverage is going to be abysmal, but most of the code is is involved in running external tools. And I just trust that these external tools work, so I don't need to test that code. Hi, everyone. It's Nabil up here in the editing booth. That's all the time we have for this episode, but we will join Tui and Kai again to talk more about developing new protocols and software to track SARS-CoV-2 variants of interest in the next episode of the MicroBinfi podcast. See you then. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.